0: I'm so glad you're here this morning and we're glad uh, for those of you who are joining us online. It's an exciting morning for us because we have an opportunity to worship God, dig into his word, spend some time praising and honoring him. There's also something exciting happening over in Shakopee today. There is a parent-child dedication taking place over in Shakopee and I want to call your attention to this because as one church we want to be supporting these families as they seek to raise godly children. When we do a parent-child dedication, we do it to give thanks for those children recognizing they're a gift from God, and we do it to pledge ourselves to be a church, and those parents pledge themselves to be family who will be raising those kids in homes dedicated to Jesus. Uh, And we want to be about that as a church together. And so we're thankful for the opportunity we have to dedicate these kids over in Shakopee And we alternate our dedications. And so I want to let you know uh, our next dedication will be here in Prior Lake on Mother's Day, May 16th. And so if you're interested in that, you can sign up for that dedication by filling that out on the Connect card that's in your row. Would you guys pray with me? And let's give thanks for what God is doing in these families' lives. Father, we're so thankful for families who love you and want to raise children in homes that are dedicated to you. And we pray that as a church, you would continue to grant us wisdom, courage, and strength to be the church we need to be in order to disciple these children well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. All right, uh, your Bibles or your devices, First Peter chapter 4. And while you're turning there, if I can share something personal for you to pray about, maybe too personal, Uh, I, uh, over the last few hours, have been dealing with a bout of uh, food poisoning and uh, not real clear up here and I want to communicate the Word of God clearly this morning. So if you could be praying and praying that we all make it through and uh, those of you in the front row, be careful. One of the things that we have been emphasizing in this study of 1 Peter that we've called Hope Rising is the fact that there is a difference between a genuine disciple of Jesus and the world that is around them. And we've seen that difference in where they seek hope. That a disciple of Jesus doesn't seek their hope in the things of this world. As a matter of fact, a disciple of Jesus recognizes that when it comes to this world, they're a what? They're an exile. There, a sojourner is the word that Peter has used over and over again here. Our life in this world is just a blip. And so we seek our hope in the eternal inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. And because that is our primary place of hope, we live differently than the world around us. Rather than seeking the things that the world seeks or that the world tells us to seek, We're a people who seek after the things of God, which this book has referred to again and again as holiness. We're a people who seek holiness. And in the chapter that we're looking at today, this distinction between the life of a genuine disciple of Jesus and the world that is around them is just brought out again and again and again. And we're going to see three major characteristics of a follower of Jesus that make them different from the world around them as we go through this passage. And I'm going to give you the first one right off the bat, right here. Right? The first one is this. Right? What sets us apart as believers? We seek to ruthlessly eradicate sin from our lives. Believers seek to ruthlessly eradicate sin from their lives. We want to be like Jesus. We love him more than anything. We want to be like him. And so we seek to eliminate sin, Verse one, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Arm yourself is a Greek military term that means to get ready for battle. How serious are soldiers about preparing to enter battle? It's a matter of life and death. It's as serious as it gets. And he says, I want you guys to be that serious about the elimination of sin in your lives. Sin is death to our soul. He says, so so get ready. Prepare yourself and fight against sin with all that God will give you. Let's say that one day uh, you went home and you found out that your house was filled with a termite infestation. Uh, Termites come by the... Tens of thousands, sometimes the hundreds of thousands, and they eat away at the wood structures in a home or in a building. In some places, they've even been known to eat away major structural beams causing entire houses or buildings to collapse. If you find out that you have a termite infestation in your home, what are you going to do about it? Are you just going to ignore it? Are you going to try and outlast them? Hope that they just get bored with your boards and move on. No, what are you going to do? You're going to do whatever you have to do to get rid of those termites, right? You're going to put the bubble over the house, call in the guys in the hazmat suits, whatever you do in that situation, because that's an infestation and you need to get rid of it because it's doing damage. And the scripture teaches us that sin is the infestation of the soul. It does damage to us as people. And so we as believers, because our desire is to know Christ and become like him, we do anything we can to ruthlessly eradicate sin from our lives. I was talking to a guy a few years ago now. And we'd been meeting and he had been talking to me about a problem that he had with the ongoing use of pornography. Uh, it, It had taken a large hold in his life. And as we were talking about this, I told him, this is, this is at its root a spiritual problem. And so if you're ready to be done with this, I'm going to challenge you to start by praying and fasting a day a week in order to have victory in this particular area. I want you to set a day aside and you are not going to eat and you're going to dedicate large chunks of that day to prayer because this is a spiritual issue. And we got to go in on this. He came back to me two weeks later and he said, What else is there that I could do? He said, I'm having a hard time fitting the the prayer and fasting into my schedule. That's not a believer's attitude towards sin. Uh, Believers are different from the world because we seek to ruthlessly eradicate sin in our lives. At all costs, we'll do whatever it takes in order to get rid of it. This passage says, we'll suffer to get rid of it. Sin can bring immediate pleasure to our senses, can't it? That's why it's tempting. Why did David command that Bathsheba come over? Because he recognized there was some immediate pleasure available. Why might we be tempted to lie and exaggerate ourselves and our success at times? Because we love that immediate pleasure of people thinking more of us in that moment. Every sin offers some sort of immediate pleasure for us. But the follower of Jesus recognizes that I could either have that immediate pleasure, but suffer long-term harm and hurt internally and eternally, or I could deny myself that temporary pleasure that sin offers. I could suffer for Christ and for righteousness, and experience tremendous blessing internally and eternally. And the believer chooses short-term denial of sin, suffering for Christ and what is right, because they recognize the great blessing that God has promised to them inside and for all of eternity. We choose to suffer to do God's will, the beginning of this passage says. And when we do... Sin ceases. Did you notice that? The first line that's up there, the middle of uh, verse 1 there. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? Does that mean that if I suffer enough, I'll never sin again? And so we should all be pulling out our fingernails with pliers, beating each other with baseball bats to a pulp, Because if we just suffer enough, we'll never sin again. No, I don't think that's what that passage is talking about. But what we do recognize is that if we're willing to suffer for Christ and righteousness, it means we stand with him. And so the march of sin in our lives is halted. And in fact, sin is stopped in terms of its control over our lives. And we no longer have to give in to any particular temptation in our life. We have victory over sin in Christ. Now it is God and righteousness that we are slaves to as followers of Jesus. And the sign that we are living in that victory and that righteousness is our willingness to stand with Christ in the midst of suffering. Not only that, when it comes to a particular sin, this word for ceased means to halt an enemy's attack. When temptation comes and we stand with Christ against that sin, that, that, uh, that temptation is stopped, right? That, that onslaught of sin is stopped and we're told the devil flees from us in that situation, And so we are a people who are willing to suffer so that sin will cease in our life. We'll do whatever it takes to ruthlessly eradicate sin. And this passage says a large part of our motivation for that is as followers of Jesus, we recognize there's going to be a judgment. That we're going to stand before our maker and our judge and give an accounting for our life. Verse 4 says, with respect to this, they, the world are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So, so the world is going to be surprised you don't enter into all of this sin and they'll even malign you or make fun of you because you won't enter into it. But, verse 5, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The believer recognizes that judgment before God is coming. And so it keeps them from participating in these things that the world wants them to participate in. Judgment is a motivation for us to eliminate sin in our lives. Jesus teaches this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, You guys, if your hand causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, ruthlessly eradicate that sin. What does Jesus say is the motive for that? He says, because it is better to suffer in this life in those ways than to suffer forever the wrath of God, separation from him and all that is good in hell. He says that that judgment, that's a motivating factor for you guys to be ruthlessly eradicating sin as my followers. There are churches who avoid talking about judgment or what flows out of judgment these days because it's not popular. But we recognize that in that, we are eliminating a primary motivation that Jesus has given us for righteousness and the elimination of sin in our lives. God calls us to ruthlessly eliminate sin. Those who obey the gospel will stand before God alive in him. At that day of judgment, verse 6 says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. There are those in Peter's day who were judged in the flesh, they were found guilty by human tribunals and they were put to death. And even though they're dead before they died, they were obedient to the gospel. And so even though they are dead in the flesh, they are what? Alive in the spirit. Right? Because it's those who are obedient to the gospel, who even though they will die in the flesh, can live in the spirit and be with God. All of these first few verses are summed up in verse 7. If you look at verse 7 in your Bibles, it says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What does Peter mean, the end of all things is at hand? Did he think Jesus was coming back in the next couple of weeks and he just missed it by a couple thousand years? Probably not. It, It was 30 years before this, on the day of Pentecost, that Peter proclaimed to people, we are in the last days. And so, Peter knows he's been living in the last days for 30 years at this point. So, what does he mean the end of all things is at hand? What he means is there is nothing else that needs to happen in God's history of the world before Jesus returns and judgment takes place. The crucifixion, it's happened. The resurrection, it's happened. The spirit, he's come at Pentecost. What's next? Peter says, the very next thing is going to be the end of all things. And so we're to be prepared. How does that motivate us to live? It says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We're to be self-controlled. Not seeking after those immediate pleasures that sin offers, but instead recognizing the long-term blessings of denying ourselves any sin And standing strong for Christ. We're to be sober minded, or some of your translations say here, clear minded. Uh, People who aren't lost in the fog of all that this world wants to bring into our life, all that this world wants us to be thinking about how to get more, how to get more entertained. Instead, followers of Jesus have a, a laser focus on Him, on His return, on judgment, and on eternity. And if judgment wasn't enough of a motivator for us, how does he end verse 7? He says, we're to live self-controlled and clear-minded for the sake of our prayers. Our prayers, hinging on our pursuit of Christ, has been a major theme in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands who mistreat your wives, God will not hear your prayers. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. To those of you who reject God and live in sin, God is opposed to you and your prayers. But, but verse 12 also says, If you're seeking Christ and seeking righteousness in your life, his ears are attentive and his eyes are open to what you are praying. And here we see again, please be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers because God loves to answer the prayers of His children who are pursuing Him and seeking after Him. Just one more motivation that we have to ruthlessly eradicate sin in our lives as His followers. That's the first thing that sets us apart from the world. As believers, we seek to ruthlessly eradicate sin. Second, We're obsessed with loving others. We're obsessed with getting rid of sin in our lives, and we are obsessed with living out love towards our family and fellow believers. Above all, verse 8 says, keep loving one another earnestly. How important is love? Above all. Right? Above all. It's job one for us as the body. And because God recognizes that we're always tempted to take this word love and make it flex towards whatever our preferences are, He's gonna give us some ways that love will, will act in the body. What will love look like in the body? First, it's gonna look like forgiveness. Love means letting go of mistakes and the sins of others. It says we're to love above all because since love covers a multitude of sins. This phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, is drawn out of the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Hate sees a sin or mistake by someone and it keeps it alive. It allows it to separate relationships. Hate sees... A sin or a mistake by someone and it holds on to it until it becomes bitterness. Love, on the other hand, sees sin and mistakes in others and it practices forgiveness. It covers over them, which is a word that means to put it behind. You You don't let it get in the way of relationships. There's forgiveness instead in this situation. How important is this expression of love in marriage? Right, where, where dozens and dozens of times every week there is sin and mistakes between a husband and a wife. In the very best mes- marriages, there are dozens of times every week wh- where couples sin against each other, make mistakes in their relationship. And the only way that marriage can be lived out in God-honoring and healthy ways is if it is regularly practicing, for- practicing forgiveness, letting go of mistakes, and the sins of others. The the only way that my wife could spend 25 years in marriage with a bumbling, inept, stupid, sinful man like myself is to cover over my sins week in and week out. That's the only way it works. It's the only way that marriage works. It's the only way that church works. People say stupid stuff all the time in church. People make stupid decisions all the time in churches. Right? I mean, other other people do. I've said plenty of stupid things, made plenty of stupid decisions. The only way that church works among us is if we're a people who don't hold on to sin and mistakes, allowing it to divide relationships and grow into bitterness, but instead are people who forgive and cover over the sin and mistakes in our lives. That, That doesn't mean we don't deal with it. It doesn't mean we don't deal with sin. It doesn't mean we don't seek reconciliation, but it does mean we don't hold on to it. And allow it to grow into bitterness in our life or divide us from our fellow believers. We're a people who, who forgive and cover over. We're also a people who express love to others by showing hospitality. What is hospitality? The New Testament word for hospitality means to use your resources to help someone who is outside the community feel like they are inside the community. To use your time, talent, and treasure to help someone who feels like they're outside of the family or on the outskirts of the family feel like they are absolutely at the core of the family. that That's hospitality. And that's God's call for us to love well by looking around and seeing who's on the outskirts of community and using our resources in order to bring them in so that they feel fully involved. We don't just forgive and show hospitality. We also express our love according to these verses, by serving other people. Uh, verse 10 says, as each has received a gift, right? how, how many people receive a gift? Right? E- each believer receives a gift, and how are they supposed to use it? Right? Why have you gotten that gift? You've gotten that gift in order to draw a lot of attention to yourself, right? You've gotten that gift so you can compare it to others and see whose is better? Why do we get the gift? So we can serve each other. We get this gift so that we can serve God's kingdom and serve each other. If you look at verse 11, it says that some people get speaking gifts. It says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Some people have given gifts that are about speaking and teaching and those people are to take that seriously. They're to be... Faithful to God and his word as they're speaking. The verse also says some have been given serving gifts. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. It's so easy to serve in our own strength. To do the very best that we can. But this passage says that those who serve are to serve in his strength, the strength that God supplies. Which I think means whenever we're serving with whatever gifts we have, we do so in prayerful dependence upon him. Whether we're serving at a WANA on Wednesday nights, or we're at a house as a part of an acts of friendship service project, or, or we're serving by counting funds on a Tuesday here at the church, however we're serving, we are prayerfully dependent upon Him in that service, recognizing that the only way that great things happen in people's lives is when God's at work in them. Now, why do we do this serving? Why do we do all of this loving that this passage talked about? The end of verse 11 says, this is why we do it. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All of our service, all of the ways that we love each other in in forgiveness, in hospitality, why do we do it? because we love him and his name more than anything, and we want to bring glory to him in all that we do. Believers are obsessed with getting rid of sin in their life. Believers are obsessed with loving others. And finally, we see in the passage, believers are different than the world around them because we have hope during suffering. We have hope in suffering for Jesus because it means we belong to him. Look at these verses, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. Should we be surprised when we have trials? Should we be surprised when we have hardship, right? Why why is this happening? No, we shouldn't be surprised, right? Because God says, that's going to happen if you're my follower, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You guys, if we will suffer with Christ and for his name, it means that we belong to him. It's those who who belong to him and are in relationship with him who are willing to suffer for him and for what is right and what hope there is in that. Because if we stand with Jesus in the midst of the trials of this life, it means that ultimately we're his child and we'll experience the glory that is his. And be with him in that eternal inheritance. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We are suffering with him in this life and suffering for what is right. That's great, he says. Because it means you belong to him and you'll experience the glory and goodness that are to come. Imagine you are on an airplane. You're at 30,000 feet in that airplane, and all of a sudden you find out that the airplane is going to crash. And the crew begins to offer parachutes to everyone on the plane. But to your surprise, you are the only one in your row who actually accepts the parachute as the plane is going down. The people in your row actually start to make fun of you because you're wearing the parachute. Do you know how frumpy that parachute makes you look? It looks like you put on 20 pounds when you put on that parachute. You can't even sit back comfortably in your chair. What are you doing? How concerned are you going to be about the fact that people are making fun of you for putting on the parachute? You're going to actually be excited that they're making fun of you for putting on the parachute, aren't you? Because it means you're wearing the parachute. Every time they mock you for wearing the parachute, there's joy in that because it means you're the one wearing a parachute in a plane that is going to crash. You're the one who's going to survive. And wouldn't you in that situation, no matter how much they made fun of you, continue to plead with them to put on the parachute as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. When we stand with Jesus in the midst of trials, others may mock us, others may ridicule us for standing with Jesus and standing for what is right. And we have great joy in that because as they mock us for standing with Jesus, it's a reminder, we stand with Jesus. We are faithfully passing this test, which means we'll be with him in eternal inheritance forever. There's great hope when we stand in suffering with Jesus. But I want to be clear. Well, actually the text wants to be clear in verses 15 and 16. This only applies to suffering for Jesus and for what is right. It does not apply to suffering for your own mess that you create. Look at verses 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer Or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. There is no benefit or blessing for suffering for your own mess. When I was a student, I took a job at a rendering plant. And one of the jobs that I did at this rendering plant was that I drove a, a truck with a trailer attached and went around and exchanged uh, the 50-gallon the drums of industrial grease at different locations. So it was my job to load up the drums that were full of grease and to put new ones and then to clean around the area because all of these places were really messy with their grease. So I had a pressure sprayer on the back of the truck and I'd spray everything down and often I'd get back and my truck was messy. It had grease all over it. And so I would take the pressure sprayer fairly regularly and spray down the outside of that truck to make sure it was all nice and clean and shiny. One day I noticed as I was driving back that the inside of my truck was very dirty. It had grease all over it. And I thought, I got to clean the inside of my truck. And so when I got back, instead of grabbing a rag and wetting it or grabbing some white spin in order to clean that, I thought this would all go much faster with the pressure sprayer. Let's get this done. And so I opened up both doors, because I mean, I didn't want to trap the water inside. And I began to pressure spray the front of the truck. You guys, it was so clean. It was gleaming. And you can imagine how well all the electrical in the front of the truck worked when I got done pressure spraying it. I went to my boss the next day when I realized there was nothing in the truck that was lighting up or working in the front and told my boss what happened. And my boss chewed me up one side and down another. I suffered that day. How much credit and eternal blessing is there for me in my suffering from that day? None whatsoever. I I am suffering for my own stupidity and my own sin. And so Peter wants us to understand, this isn't about suffering for your own mess. I, I know people who claim the name of Christ, but the primary suffering they do is because they're jerks to other people. There's no blessing from God in that suffering for being a jerk. But there is tremendous hope and blessing. If we suffer for Christ and for what is right and part of the blessing that we recognize in the final couple verses in this chapter is when we suffer with Christ when others mock us or ridicule us for his name it means we stand with him so we will never face the punishment that our sins deserve we have been saved from that punishment. Look at look at the last couple of verses here. We have hope in suffering because we'll be saved from suffering. For it is the time of for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator While doing good. In these verses, there is a contrast between the suffering of God's people here in the world and the suffering of those who reject God for all of eternity. The passage starts by talking about judgment beginning with the household of God. This is an Old Testament phrase pulled out of places like uh, Ezekiel chapter 9, Malachi chapter 3. And it refers to hardship that God intentionally allows his people to suffer, that he brings into their life for the sake of purification. And, and we're told that God, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will. Right? God brings suffering into the lives of his believers. He allows that to happen and take place in them so that there will be purity among his people. And we're told here, if God allows that kind of hardship and challenge in the lives of his own children here in the world, how much worse will the eternal suffering be for those who are not obedient to the gospel of God? If believers are saved, scarcely, is the quote here, through difficulty it can be translated, only by the grace of God then what happens to those who reject that grace? What does that suffering look like? We don't want that to be us. We want to be disciples of Jesus who have been obedient to the gospel because that means we will never suffer the consequences of our sin. But instead, we'll be a people who experience that eternal inheritance that is kept in heaven for us that this book started with. That's who we want to be as a people. How do we know that we're disciples of Jesus, that we're believers who are following him? What sets us apart from the world around us? We seek to ruthlessly eradicate sin from our lives. We want to be like Christ. That's why he saved us. And so we seek to get rid of sin at all costs. We're obsessed with loving others. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. And we're obsessed with it. And we have hope during suffering. We recognize that suffering isn't the end, but that we suffer here temporarily for the name of Jesus and that there are great blessings ahead because we're standing with him. The natural question that this brings up is, are you a disciple of Jesus? As we look at these differences between a disciple of Jesus and the world around them, maybe you're here today and saying, I don't know that I'm a disciple of Jesus or I'm not, but I want to be. I want to have a discussion about this. Let me encourage you to use that connect card that's on your chair and indicate a desire to talk about this because we'd love to talk about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We're going to take our offering here in a moment. And as we do, we're going to continue to sing our praises to God because when we become his disciples, we can't help but praise him for the astounding forgiveness he's worked into our lives and for the amazing inheritance that is ours. And we just keep praising him and praising him for it because he is so good. The ushers will come and they'll bring the buckets around. Let me encourage you to put your Connect cards in there. And if you have an offering you want to give, you can put that in there as well. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you have lifted us up out of the pit of our sin. You have saved us from the punishment that was rightfully ours by placing it upon your son on the cross, and now we live free. Uh, Sin's control over our life has been brought to a stop. It has ceased as we stand with you. We ask now that as as we spend time praising and worshiping you, you'd be glorified, you'd be honored as your children lift up their love to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we worship the Lord together?